By now I would say there is an honest shift into, yes, we need to go into that direction. Now again, how fast? That varies widely by industry and also by company and also, you know, who should carry the cost. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week's guest is Sven Eginter. Sven is the founder and editor-in-chief of the Clean Energy Wire. Sven is joined by my colleague Nico Safos for a discussion of Germany's energy transition, bringing us an update on the state of play of Germany's energy landscape. They look at how this ambitious energy plan is now viewed by the German public and by the industrial sector. They also look at the political motivation and the support necessary to keep this plan moving ahead. They end by giving us a perspective of the broader European Green New Deal. I'll turn it over to Nikos now. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Sven. Uh, let me start with asking you a little bit about Clean Energy Wire. Tell us a little bit what your organization does and, and how you see your contribution to the broader conversation about climate change and the energy transition. Yeah, thank you, Nikos, for, for inviting me for this podcast and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about the energy transition, which is actually at the heart of what the Clean Energy Wire does. Uh, we started in 2014 here in Berlin um, to help foreign journalists understand what's going on in energy and climate policy here in Germany. You know, basically, we see ourselves ever since as the reporter's guide to the energy transition in Germany, the famous Energiewende, which, uh, as I would always say, you know, has broadened out to an energy transition beyond uh, our borders. And we do that in many ways. We provide, you know, information that is accessible for anyone basically living abroad uh, because we cover the whole story in English. And thanks to our foundation funding, we can do so um, basically for free. But, you know, we've over time created a network of journalists uh, across all continents, actually, who cover the shift of uh, the various economies from a fossil fuel based system to a hopefully very climate friendly uh, economic system. And uh, yeah, we support them in all ways we can. We provide workshops, background material on the stories of the energy transition out of Germany. That's our home base. But, you know, we get requests on all sorts of things from geopolitics of renewables to technical questions on battery production. And we do our best to support, you know, the colleagues in their reporting. Goal clearly being we want a super informed, fact-based discussion globally. And we see journalists in a, in a key role to provide these sort of information to their audiences on all levels, basically, from experts to the broad public. Well, thank you for that. And, and thank you for the work that you do. Uh, as I've uh, told you offline, I've been a fan of your work for a while now, and I've definitely relied on your uh, research, your analysis, your reporting to wrap my head around the German energy transition. So let's talk a little bit about Germany. To start at the beginning, where are we? We've, we've talked about the German energy transition, the Energiewende, 
the term has been around for a while. Um, give us a sense of where we are in that broad trajectory uh, and what can we expect over the next sort of year, year and a half? Well, first of all, we're definitely at a very exciting moment uh, of this energy transition, not only in Germany, but globally, I would say. Um, a lot of things have come together that might add to some really significant push and drive actually towards a cleaner energy system across the globe and also here in Germany. You mentioned, you know, this has been going on as a project here in Germany, if you want, for the last two decades. That's something people tend to forget that, you know, it didn't start with Fukushima in 2011 actually didn't even start with the first Renewables Energies Act in 2001. It actually even started earlier, first around the debate around nuclear, but then about, you know, climate-friendly uh, forms, you know, gathered pace over the decades. And where are we now? Well, it's fair to say that with nearly 50% of the German electricity demand now being covered by renewables, with a coal exit law in place, with the nuclear exit going to plan, if you want. Um, there are a lot of factors now, a lot of you know, solid foundations in place to, for the whole energy transition to pick up pace. But what we've also found out over the last decades, as you know, the whole political system and the experts gained experience on how that all works, you know, that there are a number of issues still to tackle uh, if we really want to get to a climate neutral economy by 2050 as it has been just enshrined as a goal and and maybe we're going to talk about this but you know the it is fair to say that over the last 2 years probably the the whole dynamics has really picked up again and even throughout the covid-19 crisis you know that is still you know you can still sense that there is a strong development towards a, a climate-friendly economy. Obviously, our friends at Fridays for Future would say it's not fast enough, but that's then a different story which we're going to talk about probably. Yeah, let me let me pick up on sort of different constituencies in which we can think about. So I want to talk maybe about the public, the politics, German industry, but let's start with the public. Give us a sense of sort of the pulse of the German public and how they think about this energy transition. Yeah, no, that's that's obviously a very important uh, element for, for anyone to understand, especially if you're not in Europe, that throughout the decades, but in particular over the last few years, um, the support for the general direction has been very solid and strong, and it has even gained, I would say, um, thanks to the Fridays for Future movement uh, and their climate protests, which have left quite a mark on the German uh, system here. So you can see poll after poll, and we've tracked that on those polls on, on our website as well, that, you know, for all the talk about details of the energy transition, the general direction sees very strong support uh, in the German public. And, you know, that's obviously a very important uh, foundation to tackle the, the more difficult elements if you want to get your economy off fossil fuels and uh, into a climate carbon neutral uh, future. And, and one sign <clears throat> of that, if I, if I may say, is that if you look at the German parliament, the federal parliament, you know, all parties present in the German federal parliament and most of the, the, the state parliaments as well, 
with the exception of the right-wing nationalists, support the direction of the energy transition. There are a lot of debates about the details, and a lot of debates about you know how to go about it exactly. But you know that you could say that in Parliament, you have like ninety percent the uh, or the members of Parliament supporting the general direction, which is a reflection of where the public stands on on this as well. Let's talk a little bit about that political alignment and constellation. And I think there's a couple of things that for someone who doesn't live in Germany, you know, you kind of wonder. One is obviously uh, Angela Merkel has been sort of the chancellor for a while now, so she has towered over German politics. Uh, She is at some point on her way out. We have a number of uh, sort of state elections and obviously uh, states have uh, influence in sort of setting policy. So as we move away from, as you said, that broad consensus where everyone agrees on the broad direction, there's a lot of detail and disagreement around the specifics. Help us understand a little bit those political forces, what's pulling one way versus another, and how we should think about the durability of this project and how susceptible it is to changes in political leadership or political forces. Um, Well, in in general, I would say, um, like all major policy projects it is obviously dependent on who's you know leading uh, and, and and which party you know sets the tone and you know anywhere actually you know the the election results are not only the result of one single topic um, but a mix broad mix of topics so yes it does matter which party um, will form part um, of the government and and we are heading as you mentioned into a really interesting year here because um, Germany faces uh, federal elections in in 2021 uh, Angela Merkel has said she will not run again so the conservative party will have to look for her successor um, as they would see it um, obviously the opposition parties would look for her successor too but in a different way and um, and so we are heading into a year full of uh, campaigning and and you know also some some sort of setting of political directions for the future on a federal level. But we also face a number of really key state elections, as you mentioned, where you know we get a first glimpse and a first taste of what's to come. And it is interesting to note that. Last year, and just around this time, you know, the Fridays for Future movement hit its peak in in Germany when you know the German government published uh, amid you know the, one of the largest uh, protests uh, in, in in actually you know recent history. If you if you take the the whole amount of people that that were on the streets these days in Germany, um, they published their climate strategy and an update to to their climate policies and. It pretty much looked as if this would be a given that that the 2021 federal election would be dominated by the the questions raised by this policy making and that political parties had to position themselves mainly along the lines where do you stand on the important issues of of climate policy. Well, now then the COVID-19 crisis happened and um, obviously that, that, you know, shifted public's attention as, as it has anywhere, you know, to, to health issues, to the question, how do we organize our our economy in times of a, of a global pandemic? Um, yet one thing I find really remarkable that poll after poll shows that the question 
of how do we get our world basically uh, uh, in a climate friendly shape how can we organize the transition is still very much at the top and in some polls even still ahead of you know the question how do we deal with uh, the the pandemic so that 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 whole sense that there is an urgent issue that needs tackling by politics and by politicians um, that that remains so i would say you know it will play a big role in the elections the the fridays for future the young people will not stop you know nagging each candidate about their positions and you can also say that for instance the, the recent paper published by a uh, top politician of Angela Merkel's party you know our current economy minister um, Peter Altmaier who laid out a suggestion for a broad consensus on climate policy in society was you know at least in part a reflection of that general mood that this is so important that you, you need to tackle it. You cannot just take it off uh, the agenda and ignore it in the election campaign. Yeah, and where does that leave us? I mean, what we've seen over the last two years was a um, unexpected, I would say, rise of the Green Party in all polls. Yeah, that has certainly shifted a little bit the coordinates of the political system. Uh, they're now in, in the most polls. The Green Party now comes second after the Conservatives of Angela Merkel. Um, and the current coalition partner, you know, we have coalition governments in, in Germany. That's quite normal of the Conservatives. The Social Democrats are doing not so well. Um, so it is an interesting mix and it's fair to say that the question, you know, how will you handle climate policies, the energy transition, but also all the related topics, you know, cleaner mobility, you know, agriculture and, and food production, how will you handle all that in the future will play a role in the, in the campaign. Can I ask you, when you think about what is the most contentious of issues, I mean, what the way you're describing it, if I could extrapolate, it's almost the contention is how quickly you move. Everyone more or less agrees on the direction. The question is how quickly you move. Is that the right way to think about it? Or uh, are there some more specific areas where you can say, actually, you really have a big divergence in terms of how different parties are trying to approach, say, industry or mobility or food or, or, or buildings? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, it, the devil is in the detail, like always. And that's where, you know, it, it does matter to individual people's lives in different ways. The, the transition as, you know, it, it starts unfolding. Um, and so, you know, p political parties, according to their core values and their core ideals, you know, position themselves differently when it comes to, you know, concrete policy measures. One key element, you're absolutely right, is the question how fast, you know, a country like Germany should be moving or even a continent like Europe should be moving in comparison to the rest of the world. Um, that is obviously a, a big difference where, you know, the more environmentalists oriented parties would say, you know, we need to go ahead. We need to, we have a, you know, responsibility, but also it's only a logical step that we do so. But it's also about details when you talk about, you know, who, which sector should move for first and in which way should there be the German car industry is a prime example of that. 
you know, it's a very important um, industry in, in, in the German country, a source of pride, you know, a, a job generator, it generates huge export revenues. And the question how quickly they should and can adjust to a different type of, you know, carbon free um, uh, mobility and, and in which way that, you know, you can, there's a lot of debate going on, on about that, for instance, but also your know, on policy sectors, you know, is it, you know, the parties position themselves differently, you have the more market based approaches that you would find with, you know, the, the, the Liberal Democrats and parts of the Conservative Party, you know, the other parties that want more regulation and, and stricter, you know, guidelines and limits and targets set, you know, by the government. And then there is the perennial question, I think, that is at the heart of all democratic policy making: Who pays? And who pays for what? Um, obviously, you know, a shift in a system, you know, always sees industries that will lose out and industries that will win. And, um, you know, some people, you know, will, will see their jobs um, being in danger. Others will, you know, all of a sudden have new opportunities. And then you need to think about how you pay for, you know, structural changes in infrastructure that's needed for, um, you know, more renewables-based um, system and, and also for mobility and that is obviously a question do you do it through taxes through market-based instruments um, who gets to pay the taxes will it be consumption that's taxed or is it you know on income or on property and all these are elements where the parties position themselves quite independently and on, on different levels and that's where you know a lot of the the, the, the positioning and the um, yeah, also the discussions and, and sometimes even the uh, controversies uh, center around. You, you said a couple of things that I wanted to build on. One is talking about the industrial sector in Germany. Obviously, you have a huge car industry, you have a huge chemical industry. So I would love to hear some thoughts on how you see the sort of business and industry sector positioning themselves vis-a-vis uh, -vis the energy transition. The other thing, and we'll do a question later, is you talked about who pays. So I definitely want to talk about the coal exit and the just transition. But let's start with industry. Yeah. Give us a sense of how the industrial sector thinks about this. Well, this is this is also a very interesting and very exciting story for someone who covered you know businesses for for over a decade for Reuters to see how you know uh, industries and, and companies in particular start adjusting to new realities and, and to try to detect where are the real changes, what is greenwashing and, and, and where our lobby efforts all of a sudden turned into something completely different. And I think it's fair to say that we had a watershed moment for me at least, you know, maybe others see that differently, but you know, when in 2018, Germany's leading industry lobby group, the BDI, uh, the, the sort of like umbrella uh, association of the German manufacturing industry, published its own path to climate neutrality, basically. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a very thick study and it had a lot of caveats in it, but basically, this was the German industry saying, yes, we can do it, and here's how we can do it. And this is how you should pay for it. I mean, obviously, you know, they, they did attach a few elements to it where they could well see how, you know, government support could actually 
boost the whole thing or you know where it was needed but that was really an important moment because that was actually the the the, the leading industry association saying yep we acknowledge this is the direction where we need to go and this is how we can do it and then they broke it down by various sectors you know uh, of the industry chemicals uh, cement making uh, construction uh, you know car making and, and supplies and all these sort of things by now i would say there is an honest shift into yes we need to, to go into that direction now again how fast that varies widely by industry and also by company and also, you know, who should carry the cost? Um, is that the shareholders? You know, is it the, the broader public? Uh, do you need subsidies? Do you really need subsidies? Or is some stuff just part of a normal um, uh, sort of investment cycle where what you need is proper regulation and a clear direction? And, and these debates are ongoing, but, you know, we've seen so many companies now coming out with uh, climate neutrality pledges, um, and, and yes, they have all yet to live up to these pledges. Yeah, I mean, by now it's it's paper and, and a nice line about 2050 written on that. But you know, I mean, the more companies go into that direction, the, the higher the pressure will be to actually deliver. And I do feel that there is a genuine uh, uh, moment in there. Now we can talk about the individual um, uh, discussions. I mean, the steel makers have put out clear list of what they need to go into clean um, and, and uh, low carbon steel making uh, the, the sort of subsidies and regulatory framework they need you know the hydrogen strategy is, is certainly an element here um, and then there's the car industry which you know has you know various angles to it and, and I'm sure that you know when we talk about just transition that may come up as again and and quite frankly the united states played a, a significant role in putting the german car industry on the right path i have to say i think it's we should not underestimate the sort of echo and the ripple through effects of diesel gate on the whole industry um i think that was one key element in shifting um, the perspective of this really important, really powerful German uh, industry sector. The other uh, is also an American. I would always say it's like that Elon Musk for all the... Whatever you make of him, um, he definitely became the sort of um, yeah, boogeyman to a certain degree of the German car industry because, you know, whenever they said, well, that's not possible, he came out and said, well, you know, I'll make it possible. If you don't, I do. And And I think that had... Over time, it started having an effect. And, you know, if you take all these together, they've started moving. If that's fast enough and if everything is honest about it, you know, that's a totally different story. I want to talk about the coal exit and this whole question of who pays. And then I want to talk about hydrogen because that's clearly an area where both the Germany and, and German industry is placing a, bit, a big bet. But let's start with the coal exit. Uh, first, maybe for people who are not familiar, give us the, the very quick sort of overview of where we stand and... and what do you think we can take from that whole conversation about how Germany managed the cold exit? Well, that was definitely one of the most intriguing stories of policy making I at least covered as a as a journalist because it was you know about you know, finding a consensus on a whole industry and and you know that was relevant for for whole regions even though you could always argue about the total amount of 
jobs and and you know that were at stake but you know it mattered in in various areas and this obviously also very charged in terms of history and 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 so it was it was really intriguing to see um, how that went and when I started working with the clean energy wire in 2014 I remember there were debates whether even among environmentalists and that's only six years uh, ago whether you know you should actually call for a coal exit or whether you should call it something else or you know some sort of whatever and and you know having now you ask where we are now having now a coal exit enshrined in law uh, with an end date Whatever you make of the date, I mean, environmentalists and climate activists and a lot of people actually who do serious uh, business analysis say, you know, 2038, which is the date as the latest date enshrined in the law, is definitely too late from a climate perspective. But a lot of people would by now say it's also too late from a, from a business perspective, you know, I mean, given the, the shifting economics between coal power and, and other sources of, of energy, renewables, but also obviously uh, natural gas. So um, it is enshrined in law now. Uh, there is a pathway drawn in a very German way. I mean, you know, for all of those who, who'd like to follow that story, I mean, we have a whole dossier on that. And if you're really into it, you know, we did a tracking day by day by day of how that whole process worked. I, I don't want to give that now in, in too much detail. But what can we take take away from it? We ended with a clear exit date in the end, drawn up by this commission that had been put in place by the government and then advised the government with a whole plan and a phase-out plan that sets certain target um, points for reduction in coal-fired capacity. And alongside that, for those who don't know that, Germany is still mining lignite, um, the, the soft coal, um, so, you know, alongside that, obviously, there will be a phase out of lignite mining. And in return, basically, the, the regions affected get a pretty significant amount of money to facilitate that structural change, create new jobs, create new infrastructures, sort of support their communities to uh, create a new sustainable uh, businesses. And also, and that has been very contentious, the, the companies, the operators of the coal uh, plants, coal power plants and the lignite mines do get compensation in different types of ways. There will be um, uh, auctions, uh, capacity auctions or reverse auctions if you want. Basically, the, 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 they need to put in a bid um, to take capacity offline for the hard coal part. Um, so that's more market-based element, but still they would get compensation for taking that plant offline. And in the case of lignite, that was even more contentious and controversial. There was a deal basically hammered out, some would say, behind closed doors in the economy ministry between the, the companies and, and the state and the government, basically. So there is a lot of well, a lot. It's always depending on what you what you compare it to, but there's significant amount of money. I think it's forty billion euros for the structural uh, aid, um, and and then you know there is all the money paid out to the coal operators, uh, about four and a half billion euros for the lignite burning companies, the operators there, and then you know depending on what the the auctions will will bring. Um, money for the hot coal phase out yeah so that's that's the coal deal essentially and now we're you you, you probably want to ask what do we make out of that 
what do we make out of that? And also, I mean, you, you kind of hinted in your previous answer that, you know, this question of a just transition might even extend to cars at some point. So I'm kind of curious, you know, do, do, do people look at this experience and say, let's do it again? Or do they say, hey, this was a one off and let's, uh, you know, what, what do people make out of it at the end of the day? Yeah, well, it depends as always who you ask. Um, <laughs> I mean, as I've said, you know, for, for people who really care about, you know, a, a swift transition to a climate friendly economy, the, the end date is too late. And they would criticize that the, the goal of this, this commission and this consensus driven approach was to have everybody on board and to sort of like pacify um, the debate. And to a certain degree on that front, that didn't really happen because they, you know, basically the coal deal was published and then the Fridays for Future movement went out and said, well, no, I mean, 2038, you know, that is way too late. Um, so there's still some, some you know, pressure um, to move faster. So on that front, you know, even saying, well, that's what we agreed in a consensus. And in this commission, there were also environmentalists, you know, and there were the states and the local communities and the companies and the industry and all that. So um, they would clearly say it's too late. Um, and, and in terms of, you know, paying the companies, well, there are obviously people who would have preferred a more market-based approach to, you know, phasing out coal, i.e. a higher price on, on, on carbon emissions, for instance, or, um, you know, just letting, you know, the, the falling costs of renewables work its magic through a faster rollout of renewables. There would have been other ways. And that would have certainly, you know, cost less uh, state government money then, although it would have been less secure probably. So there are people who would question the efficiency of this deal in terms of you know, money. And then there's what you mentioned, uh, the just transition element. And that's a very tricky one to judge right now because ultimately it depends on you know, what this money actually does on the ground. I would like to say though that if we learned one thing is that it was probably not more important, but equally important and will be in the future even more so taking the communities along and giving them a sense of, you know, you're appreciated, your concerns are appreciated, let's find a solution together. And I would not underestimate the sort of effect this whole public discussion about the coal exit had. Basically, around this coal commission, there was so much debate going on that, you know, so many people, you know, were involved and on all levels that you could almost not be not informed <laughs> about it and not feel involved. I, I remember that, for instance, one uh, newspaper, local newspaper in Lusatia, one of the mining areas, you know, started running open debates. Uh, they organized it as the newspaper, which is actually also a great way of reviving local media, actually, because they were all of a sudden the moderator of the various interests there. Uh, which was quite interesting and and so they basically took the community along and whether that will then ultimately continue in that way or whether you you just dump money and then you build a few flagship proje projects and then walk away I, you know that that will be the the key element to making this probably a success that's true for all communication around climate change actually and about climate action is that you need to take people seriously which doesn't mean that you give them a free ride on, on every opinion they may have but at least you have to take them seriously and then try to, to create a sort of shared 
uh, purpose around this this transition and and you know we will see whether that's going to work i mean there is now money on the table and you know that's not that shouldn't be the problem and some of the the future projects are certainly necessary in these areas like better infrastructure uh, and all that but you know whether that's enough to keep people um or give people the feeling that that they've been taken seriously and not just stripped of their jobs um, that will de much depend on how that's handled from here on You've mentioned hydrogen a couple of times, so let me uh, ask you about hydrogen. It, it seems from across the Atlantic that this is one of the big bets that Germany is making. Tell us how we should be thinking about Germany's position vis-a-vis -vis hydrogen. Well, you nicely summarized it. You know, we're putting a bet on hydrogen. It features big time now in all the debates about decarbonizing heavy industry. Uh, you know, there is a debate how we can meet the needs, uh, how we can get the prices down quickly. There is a lot of money being spent now on research and development and, 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 and flagship projects. Also, as part of the COVID-19 um, recovery package, by the way, Germany works hard to link its hydrogen strategy uh, to other countries. Uh, you know, there are joint efforts with France, there are discussions with Poland. You know, there's a European hydrogen strategy which tries to link all these elements. So yes, it has developed very quickly into a big talking point about the future pillars of the energy transition. It's also been an element where obviously big industry can come in again as an important player. And, and that's something I think which we shouldn't underestimate, that they have capacities that they can put into research and development here, which, you know, in a more decentralized energy system, you know, would have been difficult to, to, to put in there. You mentioned the European hydrogen strategy, and so we haven't talked a lot about Europe, uh, but obviously while all these conversations are happening in Germany, we also have the European Green Deal. Um, help us understand you know, the interplay between these German efforts and these pan-European efforts. Well, it's actually very good that you asked that question because even a lot of people in Germany don't realize how closely interconnected um, their European policy approaches and the German uh, national uh, policy approaches are, which is true for all countries in the European Union, by the way. Obviously, parts of the energy system are already, you know, largely regulated through uh, Brussels. Um, you know, we have the European Emissions Trading System and now we have the Green Deal, which obviously aims to, you know, boost the clean energy transition across Europe, making Europe the first carbon neutral, I think, or greenhouse gas neutral uh, continent, as uh, President von der Leyen uh, put it. And, and these elements are very closely linked. Now, often on a very, for a lot of people on, on administrative levels, which they in the public sphere, you know, find hard to disentangle, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why there are a lot of myths about uh, Brussels uh, are swirling around. But it's true that the goals they set in Brussels and ultimately the whole EU through their um, the, the council um, subscribes to has a huge impact on what happens here in Germany. Pretty simple example, if the EU now decides for stricter rules on, on car emissions and if the EU now decides for instance, to go for a more ambitious goal on renewables and on emissions reductions by 2030, that feeds directly back into the German debate because we are basically under burden sharing uh, agreements 
will have to play a larger part than we thought we had, even though we may have you know, committed ourselves to a certain number in emissions reduction by 2030. We here in Germany may have to revisit that if the EU, if we agree on an EU level first for a higher target. So that, that, that does play a role. And obviously the, the Green Deal also aims to support countries that have been a bit more reluctant to move uh, into that direction. There is a Just Transition Fund uh, also linked to the COVID-19 recovery package. Um, so the, there are elements that have a direct impact onto moving not only you know, the, the EU as an entity, but also individual countries into a certain direction. And, and that's not to underestimate, because that's ultimately, you know, when you have 27 countries that agree ultimately on a direction, um, you know, that can create a whole new dynamics. We've seen other fields where they started to, to block each other, which is, you know, the, the, the flip side of having to deal with uh, all your neighbors to come to an agreement. Well, Sven, thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, now you can see why there's so much material on uh, clean energy wires, so many different stories to follow. So I urge our listeners to uh, go check out the website and, and follow the work that uh, Sven and his colleagues are doing out of Germany. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Nikos, for all these good questions. And I'm looking forward to all the clever questions that come our way based on what people find on our website. Thanks to Sven and Nikos for that great discussion. Be sure to follow the Clean Energy Wire for the latest energy transition journalism from Sven and his team. And you can find more episodes of Energy 360 at CSIS.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.